Welcome to the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders get clarity on how to align sales and marketing, build a high-performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth for their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Davis, author of award-winning book, Create Togetherness, and founder of Rev Engine. Let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, it is Jeff Davis with another episode of the Rev Engine podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders align sales and marketing, transform the revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth. I am excited to have our guest, Adam Goyette, on the show. We met, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, something like that. Adam was a guest on an event that I used to host called the Sales and Marketing Alignment Summit for about four or five years. I'll maybe bring it back. Stay tuned. But he was a great panelist. We had a marketing leader, sales leader. I think we also have made him have a rev ops leader to really talk about this topic, which I love and am very passionate about sales and marketing alignment. And I love as a marketer, his perspective about really aligning with sales, the importance of having a great sales partnership. So I definitely wanted to bring him on the show. Even more importantly, his breadth of knowledge of being in large organizations as a marketing leader, but also working with startups and early stage organizations. And I think that he can help some of the companies that might be mid-stage or even larger adopt some of these things that are working for small organizations. A couple things before I let him tell a little bit about his background. He is currently the founder of Curtis.co. I won't tell you what that is. He will. And then also a partner at Hyper Growth Partners. So he's doing a lot of work of just distilling his knowledge and wisdom over the years and helping early stage companies really do it differently, do it better when it comes to their go-to-market strategies and motions. So Adam, I'm going to get out of the way. I'll let you tell people about you and all the amazing things you've done. And literally everything that I do, I find a way to bring Adam because he's just so good at what he does and articulated in a very simple and easy way to understand. So with that said, Adam, all you. Yeah, thank you. And my also be included just because I'm the only one crazy enough to do a podcast at 6, 6 a.m. in Chicago. Hey, we got to get it done. We got to get it done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for the intro. So I work right now with early stage startups, trying to help them figure out their go-to-market motion. And so that includes everything from what ad channels should we be running? What's our messaging positioning? Where do we see opportunity in the market we're going after? And so really helping them figure out their overall strategies and setting them up to scale because you and I were talking about this before we jumped on, but it's a blessing and a curse if you're an early stage startup because you can do anything. Right. Every social channel is an opportunity, but you actually can't do everything because you're limited on resources, funds, all these kinds of things. So it's really important you make the right decision in terms of where you're placing those bets. And so I work with companies to help them figure that out. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, especially with the work you're doing now, I've had the chance and opportunity to work with larger organizations that prioritization that you have to do as a startup sometimes gets lost, but is needed. That discipline is needed in large organizations. Because to your point, you start to dilute your resources when you are in all channels and there's like, you have to be on every social media platform. And I am always the squeaky wheel as a marketer of saying like, but are our people there? Yep. But we yep. need to be there, Jeff. I'm just like, do we? <laughs> It's okay if you're not in a channel, especially if your people aren't there. So yeah, it's just that discipline. I think we can learn a lot from early stage startups of what they have to do because you get less discipline, I would say, as you get more money and more budget and you want to throw it everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's super important. Even if you're those mid-stage companies, right, of what you're saying no to is equally important as what you're saying yes to. Because one of the best exercises I love doing with marketing teams is kind of the start-stop routine where it's like, okay, what are we doing? this past quarter that we don't think is actually a good use of time. And as a marketing leader, you don't have to be the one to figure it out. Like if you actually ask your team that question, they'll gladly tell you like, hey, 
we're running whatever these posts on Instagram and nobody engages with Instagram and we have a hundred followers there yet I spend two hours every week managing this. Right. And it's like, okay, to your point, is our audience even there? And even if they are there, is that the type of thing they're engaging with on that platform? And so it's okay to just be like, yeah, we're just going to abandon Instagram and we're not going (laughs) to manage this account and we're just going to leave it as is. And we're aware of that and fine with it. Do you ever feel like you get pushed back because people are concerned about a missed opportunity or working themselves out of a job? I mean, it probably is a little bit aggressive, but do you ever get that back of like, oh, but we started it. We have to keep doing it. It'll turn around at some point. Like, do you ever get that pushback? You do get that a little bit. I've definitely gotten that pushback. And I also think you get pushback when the competitors are there. Right? Okay. It's like, well, everyone else is doing it. So we should have a presence there too. And it's like, well, everyone else is there, but nobody's really killing it on this platform or whatever it might be. Right. So just because your competitors are there, isn't a reason to be there. It's kind of like when people used to go to trade shows for that reason. It's like all of our competitions there. It's like, okay, yeah. that's fine. But like, that doesn't mean we need to go spend $40,000 on a booth just to be there, right? I yeah. think there's different ways to approach things. And I think to your point is like when you get to those larger organizations, they spread themselves so thin that you're not actually going deep enough. You're kind of shortchanging yourself on the other platforms where you have real opportunity, right? Yeah, It's kind of like your advertising dollars is the way I think about it. So if I have $100 for an ad campaign, if I just target general 100 people, everyone's getting a dollar is kind of the way I look at it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if I can figure out the four people who are in market and only target them, then I'm actually spending $25 on each person to try to get their attention. And how much more valuable is something like that because you're going deeper and you're figuring out all these things. And so I look at any channel kind of that same way. And so I think if you can go deeper on one channel, you know, who cares about the other ones that aren't, you're not going deep on, figure the ones out first. Yeah. You made me think about organization I worked with in the past in a very similar situation where the trade show, the word trade show is actually what triggered it. But like, there, we have to be at this trade show. If we're not there, then da 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 all that sort of stuff. But I was like, but you've gone consistently year after year and it just doesn't lead to any results. Like, or if they yeah. are, they're very minimal. So, and the CEO was convinced that we had to be at this trade show. So I said, okay, I started to analyze it. I'm like, well, it's the right audience, but you're not getting in front of them in a way that's compelling by standing in front of a yeah. booth. So I was like, why don't you leverage your relationship and actually go speak? at a session and have like the emphasis be on that versus the booth. And the booth is like a secondary, right? The real like driver, like being a thought leader and bringing in customers. And it's that like change of the way in which you engage, like if you quote unquote have to be there, which I would agree with you, you don't have to be everywhere. It's the assumption that you have to do it a certain way. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. I I would do a very similar thing, right? Cause it's like, you would get that as a marketing leader, you get the request from sales. Like, Oh, we want to go to this trade show this year you know, we have to be there. It's like, well, have you ever gone before? No. Uh, Okay, before we go, just roll out $50,000. And why don't we actually just host a dinner this year? And so if it's as valuable as you say it is, we should be able to get 10, 15 people out to a dinner one of these nights, right, who are decision makers, send a rep to host the dinner, have them walk the floor, schedule meetings. And if it works out great, and we like, wow, we had tons of meetings and stuff like that, then maybe it makes sense to have a booth the next year or just keep running that playbook. There's ways you can dip your toe in the water in a scrappy kind of way, where I think the difference between like an early stage startup and like later is like, they'll just buy the booth. Whereas the early stage startup will be like, how do we hijack this uh-huh, event? Right. Uh, right, because we're not spending 50K. So what are creative ways we can just execute at this event and figure it out? 
Yeah. And I think like when you're a larger Fortune 100, Fortune 500 company, the signals of the market, if you're not there, is very different than if you're early stage. But I think you can also use kind of like those hacks in addition to what you're doing to really like drive and be more effective. And again, it depends on the situation. It's not necessarily saying you don't do it anymore because like, for instance, I don't know if you're Oracle and you don't show up, like people are like, is Oracle okay? Like what's going on? But on top of that, you can do these like really creative tactics to really make things more effective, especially now in kind of the environment we are. And I've said this has been happening probably over the last three to five years. You can give me your opinion. Marketing is being really pressed to show contribution to revenue. No longer is it just like, this is kind of the cost of doing business. You know, marketing has operated for many, many years as a cost center, which I know a lot of marketing folks uh, don't want me to tell the truth, Uh, (laughs) but that is the truth. So in your mind, how have you historically like looked at proving and demonstrating like contribution to revenue? Like what are the metrics you should look at? Like if I'm an organization where I'm getting pressured as a marketing leader, marketing team to do that, what are your suggestions? Yeah, the first one is look at revenue. (laughs) (laughs) Which is actually (laughs) a very important one because not everybody's doing it. Yeah, as many people talk about it on LinkedIn, there's very few actual people doing it. And so I'm amazed uh, still when I talk to marketers or companies like, well, what's your North Star goal or your North Star metric that you're measuring success off of? And a lot of times it's still like leads and things like that, right? And in these numbers where by themselves are not bad numbers to be tracking because they're good indicators of what's going to happen down the funnel. But if you're not watching that piece of it, you're kind of missing the mark because you could live in a world where, and I've seen companies doing this, marketing's like, we crushed it this quarter. We throw up 140% of our goal for leads and all this. And the company misses the revenue target. (laughs) And it's like, you didn't crush it if the company missed the target, right? Um, And so I think... The alignment whole piece is aligning on a goal, right? So if I'm in marketing, my end goal as a marketer is to help the company drive revenue. Now, there's lots of ways you can do that and building a brand and specific lead gen campaigns and all these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, it comes down to revenue. And so for me, I want to align to that. And so what happens is when you align to that, you suddenly care about what happens after you pass over a lead in the funnel, right? So if I'm product-led... I don't care about just getting trial signups as the marketer. I should care about how many customers did I get. Now, if I know the trial converts to 20% and I need to get 200 customers this month, okay, I need a thousand trial signups to actually get that number. But what happens is it's not usually that consistent and there's things that happen, right? You might drive a lead source and they convert less. And so you need to understand what's happening past the funnel when you're passing something over Like, okay, why aren't they converting? What's happening in the onboarding flow that's causing people not to complete their onboarding? And you start digging into these questions because you care. And then what you find is like, oh, we can actually help with that. Or, hey, this one lead source is not good for us. It's the same thing with sales, right? I don't pass it over at a demo request and just be like, okay, job's done, right? Like, I want to know what happens. How quickly are we scheduling the demo? How many of demos are actually showing up? Is there anything we can do there? And when you start caring about that end result, One is sales or product or whoever will appreciate you a lot more as a marketer because it's like, oh, they're not just interested in driving some vanity number. It's how they view it. They actually care what's happening. And you can actually help in a lot of ways in that experience. And so an example would be a company I'm advising 
they saw a drop off in their basically like demo requests, the demo show rate. And so marketing was kind of like, hey, we're not hitting the revenue targets. So what's happening here? And we started digging into it. And what we found was like the BDRs were just booking meetings like up to two weeks out. And so we said, okay, well, how do we change this? Let's just get people booking time directly on the site. So bypass the BDR component. Mm -hmm. So have them select the time directly with a, let's limit the window to five business days so they can't book further out. And then instead of calling to schedule the meeting, we'll call and confirm it. And so we're calling and confirming, getting details and qualifying it additionally, but they already have a calendar event on it. Okay. And then the morning of the demo, marketing came up with the idea of let's send them a Starbucks gift card, just a $5 gift card. Like, Hey, Jeff, I know we're chatting later today. Coffee on me. Looking forward to chatting. Just a Smart. nice touch point. So it's like, you're not just blowing off the meeting. Someone just gave you something. You feel more obligated now. And they jumped their demo show rates by like 15%, wow. which is really meaningful in terms of the pipeline. But that wouldn't happen if sales or if marketing didn't care about what happened after someone requested a demo, right? And, yeah. and those typically aren't things that sales would necessarily be managing or looking at to that level of like, how do we do change something on the website or how do we do a direct mail campaign? And so there's lots of ways marketing can help. That's just one example. Yeah. And, and, and it goes back to, and I'd love to see what you're seeing, if this need to back into marketing goals versus just setting them. Uh, I was having a conversation years ago about the fact that like, if you're not sitting down with sales and backing out of the revenue target, because yep. again, it's about conversion rates, it's about what you can contribute to. And that really gives you then the top of funnel that you need versus having this kind of arbitrary like, oh, we need 10,000 leads. I'm like, well, where did that come from? And then you yep. find that there is, since there's no interdependency, there is no kind of like, I don't care if, if we don't hit it or if we hit it, as long as we hit it, like, great. Uh, it just, there's a different sort of motivation there. So I don't know if you're seeing organizations actually backing out of the sales revenue target or just kind of randomly choosing numbers. Yeah. No, I think that the companies still randomly choose numbers, sadly. But I think like that's where I spend a lot of time with companies is like, hey, here's how we build a demand model to support the revenue goals. So it starts with like, hey, we need to drive a million dollars this quarter. Okay, cool. How many deals is that? Like how many customers based exactly. off our average? Okay, so we need a thousand customers to do this. Okay, what's our opportunities to customer ratio? It's 25%. Okay, we need 4,000 opportunities. What's our lead? And then you basically back into that number. Right. And what you find is too, once you have that number as a marketer, not every lead is equal, right? So someone downloading or showing to a webinar is not the same as a demo request from paid or organic direct, whatever you're looking at. And so you start to figure out like, okay, if we're going to drive a thousand webinar registrants, that's actually only going to generate 50 opportunities mm -hmm. versus if we drove a thousand through this campaign, it'll generate 500. Uh, and so kind of going full circle to where this conversation started, it's very easy to say no to something like Instagram or and I'm just picking on that as an example, right. when I know it doesn't ladder down to basically the goal I'm trying to hit, right? If I'm going to spend my time and I'm responsible as a marketer for this goal on social where I need to generate 10 opportunities this month from social, am I going to spend my time on Instagram when I know I'm being held accountable to like an opportunity number? Yeah. Or, and it's not a vanity metric, or am I just going to kind of say like, okay, where are these actually coming from? And so I think that's where like aligning the goals, it just can't be a top down thing. Cause like the trickle down needs to be like, okay, you own content. Here's what we need from content this quarter to be successful. And so then it's like you show people will just behave. You don't have to worry about like making sure 
the team is focused on the right thing, they're just naturally going to do it because that's the goal you put in front of them. Right. And you have a better argument, like you said, so we've backed into this overall kind of volume goal if we need, again, 10,000 leads, whatever that is. Yep. I know my conversion rates per channel, then I it's much easier for me to push back, even if I'm a, like a junior marketer or a mid-level marketer to say like, look, you know, you gave me this goal. When I look at like my budget spent across these channels, we need to either reduce spend on, we'll keep with Instagram or whatever, because my conversion ratios of all these other channels, webinars, conferences, whatever, so much higher. When we look at the total number of projected like conversion, that is actually a waste of spend. So then that's a very different conversation than saying like, oh, we have to be there because our competitors are there when it's not converting. Yeah. And also I think of what to say no to, but also to explain why you're doing certain things as a marketer, right? Because like how many times do you hear like, oh, marketers, you guys are just creating this like random content on the site for the blog. Like nobody reads the blog or why don't you just go run paid campaigns and just get me demo requests yeah. uh, instead? And it's like, well, we know that people who come to the blog, our organic and direct traffic converts at 5% maybe or super low 2% into a demo request. But because they've been educated, they convert into opportunities at a much higher rate and customers at a much higher rate. So here's why we're focusing on building out our top of the funnel traffic because it breaks our dependence from paid. And so you can have a conversation with sales where like, oh, okay, I get it now as to why you're creating this content because you can tie it to that end outcome. Right. And so I think that's a big piece of it because I think a lot of times a lot of the Slack marketing gets is like, oh, you're doing these things and they're not tied to the end goal. And some of that is true, but some of it's because marketers just haven't done a good job explaining how it's actually connected because in a lot of ways, it's not like it's not connected, right? Yeah. I always say marketing is very, I should say typically, I won't say very, typically bad at selling themselves to sales. Like I don't, it's interesting to me because, and I would still say majority of probably marketers and marketing leaders have not been in sales. So I think that explains why, but I'm like, I'm always kind of amazed. And part of this is because I started my career in sales, right? When I transitioned to marketing, some things just made sense to me because I came from sales, but I'm like, you guys are not doing a good job of articulating why sales should care. And that's why they don't care. Like, yep. the, like it's on strategy. It makes sense. It's logical, but like in the bubble of marketing. So the language even you use to explain it to sales has to be different. And I think that takes a special sort of leader to say, like, this is why you should care and not do yep. all like the marketing speak and the funnel and the, cause they don't care. They just say, how are you helping me close more deals? And then yep. say like, this is why we're doing it. This is what we're doing. Have a great day. Does that make sense? And we move on. Yeah, I think. I kind of have this theory that marketers are afraid of salespeople. (laughs) I kind of actually agree with you. (laughs) It's kind of like they're like afraid. It's like the cool kid table in like high school or something. They're like afraid to go over there. I think they're afraid to get called out on stuff. And a lot of times if they're not tied into the revenue goal, it's a conversation that feels very scary. And so I think a lot of times they don't want to present because they don't want to get called out by sales is like, why aren't we doing this? And sales has... A lot of times it's the more like boisterous, louder personalities and marketers aren't that in a lot of cases. And so it's a different dynamic. And I think a lot of times there's like this intimidation of like, oh, sales. And I think the reality is if you align the end goal, like that feedback is so valuable to say like, it's actually one of the biggest things I did when I was at like G2 was I stole almost any idea I had directly from the sales team because I was just getting feedback from them all the time, which yeah. I loved because it's incredibly valuable. It's like, hey, why is this lead source good or bad? Or what are you sending in an outbound email that you're getting all these responses? 
And I would just like leverage those ideas, but you can't be afraid to just jump into that conversation. And you'll be surprised how open most people are to it and, on the sales side. And I think it speaks to like the differences in culture, which I think is also one of the reasons that we still have a lot of misalignment issues. And I think I said it in the book too, but I say that salespeople are prideful, marketers are arrogant. I think that's what I said. We have a lot of ego. Uh, and to your point, it's like the marketers are scared of salespeople because I think that salespeople ask very direct questions of like, that doesn't make sense. Or how does it, and we have like this very like esoteric, like answer that like other marketers understand, but like when we're asked sometimes to make it very simple, I think that's the intimidation factor because we can't really answer it directly. And so I do yeah. think that marketers tend to avoid salespeople in that way. But I also feel like in a weird way, and I've seen this in multiple organizations where there's almost this like elitism still where they're like, oh, you're out in the field or you're in sales, you're on a call, like you're on the phones. Like there's also this weird hierarchy thing going on at yep. the same time of being intimidated by them, which doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah. I, that is like one of my biggest pet peeves is when like marketers act annoyed by like, oh, everyone thinks they're a marketer. And you wouldn't ask, I heard someone post like, oh, you wouldn't ask like a surgeon or give your opinion. <laughs> and it's like, Okay, let's just stop for a second because <laughs> the average person sees 4,000 ads in a given day, four to 10,000 ads in a given day. So they actually are probably pretty qualified to give you feedback on your marketing. Yeah. Uh, way more. I've never actually seen a surgery, right? Like live or anything like that. So right. like, I have no idea what's happening there. Whereas like, I can tell you what would resonate or not resonate, especially if I'm on the phone with the buyer every single day. It's like marketers get your head out of your ass. Like sales probably has way more intel and understands the buyer way more than you do because they're actually chatting with them on the phone all day long. All day. And you're in a bubble, right? And so if you're not listening to sales calls, if you're not getting feedback from sales, like you're the talk about like misalignment, that's going to be a huge problem for you. And that's why I always was confused is I think one of the things that made me successful when I made the transition from sales to marketing and it, and it's a, it is a big change. It's a big change of behavior. Yep language, et cetera, is that I always involved sales really early because again, it was natural to me because that's where I came from. And they just had insights that you can't necessarily always get from market research and it's free. And so I would always be confused. When, I'm like, do we ask sales? Oh, uh, well, no, but we have market research. I'm like, but you literally could just pick up the phone or you can yep. walk over there and talk to them. <laughs> like, and, yeah. and I'm not saying like you take one conversation and that becomes like the feedback from the field, I think it's multiple conversations. But beyond that, I think having a good relationship with not just sales leadership, but actual like high producers and folks that are like actually doing the work is good because if we have a question, be like, oh, just just tap Jeff. Let's just tap Adam and see what they think about this really quick. And that at least yep. gives us like a directional pulse on maybe we should think about this differently or no, we're actually probably doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think it also helps with another big thing, which is in the alignment is like you get buy-in a lot easier, right? So Much one of the things I, I used to do all the time was I knew who the top reps were at G2. And I'd say like, hey, like Jeff, I have an idea. Like here's a campaign we were thinking about. Let me know, like, give me your feedback. We're going to do this direct mail campaign and then we're going to do this outreach and here's what we're thinking and here's why. What do you think of that? And they would be like, oh yeah, I love that idea. Or like, no, I would do this instead. And yeah. so you get feedback on the fly. And then when the campaign launches, they're actually invested in it because they felt like they helped build it. Right. And so it's like, it's their campaign as much as it's your campaign. Yes. And when you can get them bought in, like I used to pull salespeople into like our monthly brainstorms all the time. I don't know if the marketers on my team hated it, but I think it was like super <laughs> valuable because I would just have them in the room 
Yeah. Be like, tell me if this is a bad idea, if this is a good idea or what you like or love. Like that's super valuable information to me. And to your point, like I don't need to go do a study or like do some market research to find out like, will this campaign resonate? And then I can also just pilot it with those people then because it's like they like the idea before I roll it out to a hundred person sales org. Hey, let me get four people that I can just test this with. Do you have some prospects I can test this out on? And they're like, yeah, definitely. And then when you roll it out, suddenly like the rest of the sales team is like, Hey, why are we doing these campaigns for Jeff and these three other reps? Uh-huh. Like, and it's like, well, we're testing it. And suddenly you have <laughs> people demanding that they want in on it because it feels like, Oh, some advantage these salespeople have. So when you actually roll the campaign out, there's much more buy-in into actually like making it work. I literally think that is the number one hack for sales adoption. And I am so glad that I got coached early in my marketing career of like basically put together like a sales team that's kind of part of your core group, like part of the the ideation phase. Because to your point, you get instant feedback, but you also build kind of ambassadors that when you roll out, like literally I rolled out like a national program. from the first thing that I did as a junior marketer. And to the entire U.S. sales force and literally the webinar to launch it was like, hi, my name is Jeff Davis. I created this and your sales colleague is going to tell you why it's important and why you should use it. And then I shut up like I answered yep. some questions, but it was not. And again, that goes back to ego. Right. I was like, yeah, I, behind the scenes, I made all that happen. But I know that you're going to be more invested in using this if it comes from somebody that looks like you in the trenches with you. And I was just yep. there for color commentary uh, versus the whole like we're marketing and we know best and we've done all this. I'm just like, mm-hmm. Good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. You get lots of eye rolls. Like, oh, here we go. Yeah. Here we- <laughs> <campaign>. yeah. <laughs> so speaking of hacking, so you just, you had a recent video on LinkedIn, which I thought was really, really good about growth hacking. And I wanted to get your POV on like, well, first of all, let's tell everybody what it is. Cause those that are not in tech or not used to it may not be familiar with it. But I also would kind of spark my interest was how can we leverage that idea concept? And we kind of talked about it a little bit about the conference within a larger organization that may not be able to move as quickly. Yep. Yeah. So growth hacking, like there's lots of definitions for it. And I think growth hacking as a term has probably gotten like abused and uh, it has kind of a bad reputation, but at its core, it's like, how do we grow the company or whatever you're trying to do in a way where you don't have unlimited resources and you're being really creative and kind of scrappy about doing it. And I think that scrappiness, keeping that is super important for later stage companies, because I think one of the big advantages if you're an early stage company is you can do it faster and you can do it leaner and you can do it just in a scrappier way than a bigger company where it's like, oh, well, we have to have our design team build this out. And then once they build it out, we have to have legal review it. And then we have to run this campaign through finance and all these kinds of things. And so I think one of the most important things if you're a bigger organization is you have to have this approach of like, how do we do something quickly? Like MVP versions, right? Because back to the, one of the big things that I work with startups on is like, you don't have unlimited time here. You raise a certain amount of money, you kind of have a shorter, like, hey, you have runway of two years. The quicker you can find out what works and also quicker you can find out what doesn't work gets you to the answer a lot sooner as to what, where you can scale. And so the way we approach it, a lot of times it's like, how do we get an MVP version out of this and do something really fast and scrappy? And then we can scale it up. And I think a lot of times, larger organizations, they think about, okay, we want to do ABM. How do we do this for a hundred person organization? And that's where they start. It's like wrong answer, right? Like start with five people and you don't need an ABM platform. You don't need anything. If big part of our strategy is just getting in front of these buyers and having a personalized experience, how about we just 
send a direct mail to five people and do handwritten notes. And then we'll also send them these emails and we'll do this thing and just build a little micro version of it that you can launch without having to clear it by the sales team and getting buy-in and all this sort of stuff. And then it's like, now we've launched it. Here are the results we got. Now, how do we scale this out? And you can build that out. And so I think to get that kind of motion going, you have to rely on a team to kind of always be pushing the boundary in terms of like creative ideas. And I think like the two questions you can always ask as like a leader to get your team around that is a lot of times it's like, oh, we want to launch this like next month or like in two months or next quarter. And I always just ask like, well, could we launch it? What would we need to do to launch it next week? Yeah. Like, let's just pretend we had a thousand dollars and you had to launch it next week. Like, what would we do? And suddenly you find like, oh, there's this tool we could use that it could actually do this. And we don't need an ABM platform. We can just do this and we'll just track it manually for right now. And then you can get out the door way quicker to validate the idea and the campaign mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff. Because the reality is, if you spend a week on it or you spend a year on it, you don't know until it actually goes out in the wild what's going to work or not work, right. right? And I've been doing this for long enough to know, like, I don't know what's going to work, right? And that, <laughs> but I do know the quicker I can test, the quicker I'll find out what works, yes. right? And so I think don't kid yourself to thinking like you're going to build the perfect campaign. It doesn't exist until you actually put it in the wild and get feedback. And I'm so glad you said that because I do realize like the longer that you are doing something, you've been in this game. I too agree. I don't know the answer. And people was like, oh, you've been doing this for so long. I was like, because here's the thing, the world is changing and it's accelerating. What worked yesterday doesn't work tomorrow. And so to your point, people are kidding themselves like, oh, I know exactly how it's going to work. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's see. I think you generally begin to get an idea and a sense of like, okay, I've seen this before. It probably is going to go this way, but you never know. And there's always surprises that happen. And you're like, well, we didn't anticipate that. I'm glad we, I'm glad we just did a little pilot because that didn't go the way we wanted it to. Yeah. Well, I also think growth hacking is super important too, because if you're an earlier stage company and you think of like traditional marketing and traditional channels, like a trade show, paid advertising, blog content, all these sorts of things, if you're in a space, which most companies are, that's competitive. Like when I worked at Help Scout, there was 300 help desk software companies listed on G2, yeah. 300. They're all doing paid advertising. They're all going to trade shows. They're all creating content. So if you're doing that, how are you doing it differently? Or like, where's your unique angle or your opportunity for growth? It mu- it's probably not doing the exact same thing all those 300 companies are, right? right. Those are like the safe bets to make. So you figure out like, what's a creative way of how we do a spin on this? Or what's our unique way we could do a trade show? Like you said, where we're hosting a a dinner, we're going and speaking at an event, and we're just approaching it a little bit differently in terms of how we're doing it. That's a huge part of it. Yeah. And I think you also hit on the point of majority of products are not the only single option in the marketplace especially now there's multiple products and they're more or less the same. There's some features and benefits that are a little bit different, but for the most part, stuff is starting to look the same. And so it comes down to an execution issue because a lot of times you just can't outspend people. Like first of all, it's not sustainable. And in a yep. more than likely, once they figure out what you're doing, they just spend more. And then it turns this whole thing. Well, I'm spending 2 million on paid search. Well, now I'm spend 2.5. And then I'm spend, like, so it begins to get really out of control. And so I do think it comes down to stepping back and not trying to do what everybody else does, but thinking how you can execute either faster or execute in a different way in order for you to break through the noise. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And also I think from a buyer perspective too, you think about that, right? Like 
I have 300, as a, like a marketing leader, I have marketing automation companies selling to me. So if you're a marketing automation company, you're competing against those other 100 companies in that category. Yes, but you're also competing against the MarTech 10,000 in reality because all 10,000 of those companies are trying to sell me something, right? The ABM tool, the ad platforms, yep. all these sorts of things. And then on top of that, I have recruiters. I've got all these other people sending me stuff, trying to sell me things, right? And everyone's saying the same thing. We can save you time. We can save you money and all these kinds of things. And so if you're marketing to someone like me or anyone in a leadership, you have to understand like, these people are getting crushed yeah. with ads, with social posts, with cold emails, in mails, and all this sort of stuff. So, how are you going to do something different that's going to make me actually stop and read your email or stop and yeah. look at your ad? Because it's not that simple as just running the same ad as everyone else. I will say, and then I want to get to a couple other ones. I know we're coming up on time, and I won't name the company, but I agree with you. I get inundated with like emails and LinkedIn requests, all that sort of thing. But I will say. And it was nice to see this because I've been talking about this for a while about this marketing, or I shouldn't say marketing, but just like revenue leaders being really thoughtful about helping sellers be able to have cohesive conversations across platforms, because that really is what you need to be able to do. Like, you, first of all, you don't know which one I prefer. Is it LinkedIn? Is it phone? Is it email? Is it social? Whatever. But also, I need to have multiple touch points from you across all of the channels that I'm interacting with to really start to understand like who you are and why I should talk to you. And recently, the salesperson, first of all, they did their research and reached out to me on LinkedIn, knew about my book, knew about like all the things I had done. And then I saw them in my inbox, but it was like a continuation of the conversation. Then I saw them again on social. I was like, although you're not a fit, <laughs> yeah. this is done right. Like, this is what good looks like. And it just was just, it was a really flawless execution of connecting with me across channels. It wasn't, it hasn't been pushy. It hasn't been like, did you see my email? It's always been adding value and then giving a reason for why it might make sense to connect. Again, I wish I could give the company and the person a shout out, but like when it's done right, it just makes sense. So, and I think that's where, where a lot of salespeople struggle is that, and it's hard to have a cohesive conversation across different channels, but I think in order for sales leaders to really up their game of their teams, that's what you need to do. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, the generic emails I get where have you seen waiting in your response for my last email? Did you see my email? It's like, that is such a waste of touch point. <laughs> it's like, oh, just bumping this to the top. You don't need to because I saw it and yeah. I didn't respond for a reason. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so let's transition to customer intimacy, customer centricity, because I think this is the topic I've heard more and more about is companies will realize they need to get a hold of their data, specifically customer journey. How have you effectively or what advice would you give companies that are really trying to up their game when it comes to customer journey and really developing one that is that mirrors the way that actually buyers buy? Because I feel like a lot of them are exercises, marketing exercises, sales either never uses, never sees, or even marketing is just like, oh, we did it. And here's it yeah. it's on the shelf. So advice on you actually making that actionable. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. I think when I think of like the customer journey, it's a long thing, right? It's like from awareness to say like, okay, where are they spending time and understanding like what are the platforms they actually engage on in general? And it kind of goes back to that buyer persona of understanding. And I hate actual buyer personas in terms of the way they're usually executed by marketers because it's like, here's marketing Mike. And it's like this generic thing. You're like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this data, right? Yeah. So I'm way more interested in like understanding like, 
who is the person we're going after? Where do they typically spend time? But then what triggers them to actually make a buying decision or yeah. to start that process? Because usually there's a trigger moment, right? Where, like you said, I'm not in the market for most of the software that people are pitching me. But there probably is a trigger moment. Like if I was going to use like a Gusto or payroll software or something like that, I'm right now a team of one. So I have no need for anything like that, right? right? And so, but if suddenly a job opening went up on LinkedIn for my company, well, now you know I'm hiring my first employee. So suddenly it's like, hey, this job opening is open. How are you actually reaching out to this person to say like, ooh, interesting. Like this is a good trigger moment because they're probably need to figure out like payroll and all these kinds of things, Right. right? And so now if that outreach happens and you do it the right way, suddenly it's very valuable to me, right? And suddenly it's like, oh, okay. And so when I think about like marketing efficiency and sales and the customer journey, a big part of it, it's understanding that component of it, right? And understanding like, what are the triggers? And then how do we actually figure those out on marketing? So like stick with that example and stick with like the idea of being like scrappy. There's like tools like Phantom Buster where you can go out and actually like collect that data and have triggers set up to say like, hey, every time a company opens up a new position for these roles, it's a good indicator they're growing or whatever it might be. So we actually, these are good companies for us to reach out to versus like just trying to hit the total addressable market, right? And then I think within that, you have to understand like, how do these people like to buy? Like what is the typical process for them getting approval and spend and all these kinds of things? Like who else do you need to get buy-in from? Because depending on who you're selling to, like, yeah, if I'm a CMO, it's not hard for me to just take out my company credit card and sign up for a $10,000 piece of software for a year, right? Like in the scheme of things, I probably spend a ton of money on my tech stack. Right. If I'm a customer support leader, like I don't have a company credit card and just throw a $10,000 piece of software on. Like I have to get more buy-in. I don't have that kind of budget, yeah, right? Yeah, there's a team behind that, with. The decision. Yeah, so you have to understand like how do they typically buy and then cater your sales process to that, right? And so, and then once they become customers, I think understanding okay, now they're into the product. What actually do the people find valuable in the product? What's that aha moment where it's like they're getting value out of the product and then how do you build that into your journey? And so there's lots of components to it when you think about like the customer journey from like all the way to the top of like awareness all the way down to like how they actually use the product. Yeah, no, I love that. Last question for you, last two questions. Just general advice as a marketing leader, how how have you... Or what guidance would you give in improving the relationship with the sales leader? What has worked for you? Maybe also what has not worked for you just in general, because I do just a little bit of a quick caveat. So I remember I had a sales leader run up to me after a conference that I spoke at years ago. uh, And I was talking about obviously sales and marketing and the dysfunctional relationship. And when I say dysfunctional, I was like, I don't mean like you're actually fighting, like actively, like we hate each other. I'm like, you may have a great personal relationship of like, we get along, we see each other at meetings, et cetera. But your business relationship is dysfunctional in a way that you're not working together to optimize the output of your teams. And I think that's what kind of sparked the light in him and say, like, yeah, I have a great relationship with my head of marketing, but we don't really work together in an effective way. And so I wanted to kind of get your input of those leaders that may be in that spot of like, we get along. We just haven't really taken the time to really sit down and think about how we can uh, help each other increase our output or improve our outcomes what would you think or what have you seen work over your career? Yeah, I think the big thing is like, be curious, right? If you're a marketing leader, you should be curious about what sales is doing, right? Because like, ultimately, when you hit the revenue target, 
nobody cares like oh what was our lead volume right it's only when you're missing targets uh-huh. that suddenly it's like everything starts getting scrutinized and so as a marketer you should be really curious as to what happens right if you spend 40 hours a week doing anything don't you want to know the end output of that and like what happens right like if i'm going to the gym for 40 hours a week i want to know like hey what is my body fat composition or what other like i don't know what gym rats look at <laughs> i don't go to the gym 40 hours a week but like you would want to know is it actually productive is it ending up in the results i want right like am i getting stronger am i getting faster all these things and yeah. how do you measure that it's the same way in marketing so you should be curious as to what happens the same with sales like aren't you interested in like what marketing is actually doing to drive these leads that your sales team is spending hours chasing? Like, okay, what is the message we're showing to people? And so there needs to be the curiosity, but there also needs to be a dropping of like the walls and the ego to be like, it's okay if sales comes in and questions why we're doing things. Like it's not coming from a spot of like a personal attack. Right. They want to know because their literal checks are on the line of figuring out like what works and doesn't work. That's how they get paid. So it's okay for them to question things. It's okay for them to be pissed off if they spend a week getting crappy leads, because guess what? You just impacted that person's ability to earn money. And so like understanding where the other side is coming from and not taking it so personally, I think is the biggest thing. Yeah. I think those are great. Well, I always love selfishly talking to you because I learned a ton, just your experience and wisdom, that sort of thing. So I know those who are listening got a lot of value of it. I also did. So that's why we had you on the show. <laughs> uh, awesome. So, well, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So for those that want to get in contact with you, learn more about you, maybe even potentially work with you, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah, you can shoot me an email at adam at curtis.co or just find me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. And you also have a newsletter, right? Because uh, I do, yeah. How is that just off the website or what's the way to get connected? Yeah, you can get it off my website. It's on Substack. It's called the Friday Growth Note. Okay. Perfect. And then just like, what's the, the premise behind it? Just so folks know if it's a fit for them. Yeah. So I share out basically every week, a principle and growth that I've kind of learned talking about like alignment or campaigns, or this week I talked about like scrappy marketing tools you could use that are low cost to replace some of your more expensive tech. Okay. So cool. So if that is a fit for you, curtis.co, that's C-U-R-D-I-S dot co. And then we'll make sure we put all that stuff in the show notes as well for you. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Always Thanks, a great to connect. I appreciate your time. Yeah, I'll talk to you later. All right, be good. Thanks for listening to the Rev Engine Podcast. I hope today's episode provided you with some actionable insights that will help you begin the process of transforming your organization to a high-performing revenue engine. If you found today's episode valuable, we ask that you support the show's growth in three ways. First, share the episode with your friends and colleagues. Second, follow me on social media at Meet Jeff Davis on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, give us feedback on who you'd like to see on the show next. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time where we continue the conversation on how to build a high-performing revenue engine.